Justice's balance. The world has a way of making this giant mess somehow work right down to your own home. Welcome to the Angle Angle. I am Fort Worth Star Telegram columnist Mac Angle. Thank you very much for joining me. Trust me, you won't regret it. If you do, please complain to somebody else. It's not my problem. I hate stuff. I cannot stand crap. I'm talking about dustables that take up space in front of the thing that I need to access. Usually a plug outlet, sometimes a frying pan. I'm talking about the random pieces of junk that litter our homes. Stuff that we all bemoan that we have whenever we try to move. And we ask ourselves, why did I own this? Why did I buy this? Why didn't I just throw it away? George Carlin did a whole bit on stuff. Because when it belongs to you, it's stuff. When it's somebody else's stuff, it's shit. And he's actually right. Because what I have is stuff, not shit. However, I do realize I'm a bit of a raging hypocrite in this department because I have too much stuff. And I just can't quite seem to get rid of it either. In this case, this is stuff from my childhood that I am sure is worth millions of dollars on eBay. I'm talking about stickers. This XFL football. Let me see if I can show you. This XFL football. This was the XFL football from the first time the league started back in 2000. And I bought it for like, I don't know, $10. And I'm sure you can still see it as the price tag on it. And I'm so sure that eventually I'm going to blow it up and I'm going to display it because it's kind of one of those little cute sports mementos. No, I'm not. Because if you look at this football, the bladder inside of it is deflated and it's busted. So in order to fix this, I'm probably going to have to spend $50 to have a new bladder put inside of it, then to have it restitched and put air in it. Am I really going to do that? No, of course I'm not. So now I'm sitting with an object that for some reason I just can't get rid of. This is stuff. Uh, what else? Stickers. This is a Winston sticker, Winston cigarettes. This is a sticker from the when it sponsored the American Motocross Association Pro Series. It's like back in the 80s. I've got like seven or eight of them. Get rid of them. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I won't do that. I'll put it on a magnet and my inner Pinterest dork will come out and I'll make a magnet out of this. No, I won't. Get rid of it. Football cards. Got a ton of them. And because I was a Cincinnati Bengals fan, I've got football cards of the crappiest franchise in the National Football League. This guy here was pretty good. Isaac Curtis. Yeah, no one wants this card ever at all. Get rid of it. I've got dozens of them. I've got some of the worst football cards ever, and they're still with me. I just need to get rid of them. Uh, there's another one, a sticker from Hijackers. I don't know where I got this from, but I'm pretty sure it was cool back in the 80s when I followed auto racing. But this one, now these are different. This stuff is different. I'm not kidding. These are football cards from the 70s. You can tell there's a glare there. They're made out of plastic, and I have one from every franchise from like 1975, and I have multiple sets. I think I have three sets, uh, Green Bay Packers, and what I think it was from a Popsicle set. So here's one from the Green Bay Packers, and it has a description 
of what the the cow or what the franchise is known for on the back. So here's one from the Cincinnati Bengals when it had the really old logo from the '70s, and it just said Bengals across the uh, across the helmet. Probably the biggest mail-in job ever in the history of logo designs in major sports. So on the back of the Bengals one, it says making the tackle from the football heritage that gave rise to the Massillon Tigers. That's a famous high school in Northeast Ohio near Cleveland. The Canton Bulldogs and the Cleveland Browns, the new team in Ohio, the Cincinnati Bengals is another hard-hitting bunch. Founded in 1968, the Bengals wasted no time in winning the AFC Central Divisions in 1970 and 1973. The well-coached team features a balanced attack and a sharp defense that makes it a perpetually strong contender. Not only is this thing really cool, but this piece of crap is full of crap because the Bengals always stunk. But I love these things, and I'm like, yeah, somebody's going to want to buy them. Nobody wants to buy them. Here's another one. Uh, a pristine, mint condition, Joe Morgan Limit, uh, let me see if I can speak, Legends Collection commemorative coin. Mint condition. This is what the dork collectors say is so valuable. If, if it's in mint condition, you can sell it. No, I can't. It's on eBay right now. Nobody wants it. It's crap. Get it out. Now, here's one. This is cool. I followed racing back in the 70s. Well, really the 80s. I was too young for the 70s. So last year, I had an opportunity to interview legendary drag racer Don the Snake Perdome. We had lunch for a bit an hour. He's a great guy. And after it, he's in his 80s. He lives in California. He sends me a box of stuff and autographs one of these things. This is a matchbox of one of his cars, uh, one of his first drag racing cars, and he signed it, Don Snake Perdome. It's great. What am I going to do with it? Put it in my living room? So here's my challenge. I have all this stuff, and I put value on it because it's from my childhood, and I still like sports. But here's the reality. I'm 49, and I really just don't want it anymore. Here's the worst part. Neither does anybody else. I've asked friends, friends who have kids, other kids, relatives, anybody. Do you want it? The resounding answer is, meet my middle finger. No, I don't want your crap. So I have steadily put up this stuff, not crap, on eBay in hopes of making a few dollars to offset my losses. So far, I've sold a few things, nothing major. So what do I do? Do I keep this stuff in a box, in a closet, in hopes that maybe... The eBay fairy flies down from the sky, kisses me on my ever-expanding forehead, and takes the stuff off my hands in exchange for a couple hundred dollars. Or do I just finally give up, put it in the box, drive down to Goodwill, and give away these earthly possessions that once meant so much to me, but now just take up space, both in my head and on the floor? I don't have the answer. What I do know is that if I'm going to complain about too much extra stuff in my house. I better get rid of mine first. My guest for this episode allows me to unleash my inner nerd. And at this point, I'm not really sure it's an inner nerd. I think it's an outer nerd. I am a bit of a World War II buff and American history geek. Uh, and today's guest hits both of these passions of mine. He's a total expert in both fields. He served in the Marines in the 1970s. He earned his PhD from Oxford, something that I was going to do, but I decided not to. I wanted something a little less lucrative. Uh, he later 
went on to serve and work for the Central Intelligence Agency, where he worked in many different roles, including for a long period of time as a historian and the curator for the CIA Museum. He's written several books, including Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy, Ernest Hemingway's Secret Adventures from 1935 to 1961. It's about the famed author's brief time working for the Soviet Union. It's a fascinating read. He also has a new book out titled Needs Know, World War II and the Rise of the American Intelligence. The book is about the origin of the CIA and how it came to be. It's a fascinating read. Please welcome Mr. Nicholas Reynolds. Be honest. How often do you wear a shirt with a collar? Oh, a few times a week. <laughs> Is that like a quota? <laughs> That's right. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. And oh, my pleasure. Time. I, uh, I was really excited when this book came down because there's, this was a subject that fascinated me. And I, I, my, my knowledge of the CIA is really from about Harry Truman on. So I didn't really know its, its point of origin, which is obviously the purpose and the function of, of your book. So Nicholas, before I get to that, as a fellow writer, and I realize I'm not on your level, oh. from beginning to end, how long did this book take you to complete? Well, there's different ways of counting, but from from the first word I wrote, which was at a, at a spa in New Mexico, to submission, uh, which wasn't the end, but to submission was a little over two years. And then it was another year of editing. And before that, there have been a couple of years of research. Are you happy with it? I am, that's a great question, and uh, I don't get asked very much. Yeah. Uh, of course, I know where the warts are. I know, oh my God, what if I, I needed to say a little more about this or a little less about that. Uh, I am happy with the big blue lines. Uh, I think I've taken it in the right direction. There are some details that I would do a little differently. As people read the book, so a book, a book like this, nobody's going to be, uh, none, few readers are going to go, oh, he covered exactly what I wanted in the way he, I wanted him to. And so I get feedback like uh, my grandfather was in World War II and he served in the you know, 455th Radio Intelligence Battalion. Uh, I'd really like to know more about that and wish you had covered it. So um, I, you know, I, I did my best to cover the big blue arrows uh, that you could see if you were hovering at 30,000 feet so that we could see how we got from 1940 to 1945. That's really the purpose of the book, to show how American intelligence evolved from 1940 to 1945 and to look at how it left the country positioned in, for the Cold War. You don't know the Cold War is coming, of course, but you know World War II is over. And, uh, you know, uh, a good bit of American intelligence sticks around after World War II. And that's what we see in the Cold War. So my argument is past this prologue. If you want to understand what happened during the Cold War, if you want to understand what the CIA did or NSA or some of the other organizations, uh, it, it's very important to take a look at the origins. 
Okay. So when you have conversations with whether it's professionals or even academics or casual citizens and you and you start talking to them about your familiarity with the CIA, what do normally people get wrong when they first think of the CIA what it, and what its function is? Well, another great question. A lot of people don't the the distinction between code breaking and espionage is not always clear in people's minds uh and so it, it it's as if they're all lumped together mm-hmm. and that there's you know that there's a there's something called spying that covers the whole gamut of intelligence activities and yes you can use that word uh to cover a lot but uh, one thing that I try to bring out in the book is that the different kinds of intelligence call for different disciplines, and those disciplines create their individ- their own individual cultures. So you get a distinctive culture of code breaking. You get another one of law enforcement and the FBI. And then when you do espionage and special operations, you get a, yet another kind of culture. And so these 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 cultures grow are, are almost as important as anything else in the mix because that's why that's why it takes so that's one of the basic reasons why it takes so long for American intelligence to start to work together. It's still the process is isn't over yet, but it, it you know the the seeds are laid in World War II, and um, you know these the the plants that grow up are so different. Uh, and you know you really need a um, you know you, you need a really good farmer who can understand the various uh, the various crops that have sprung up. If I could use an extended metaphor for which my English teacher would punish me. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dive into this a little bit, I my familiarity with the CIA was based on mostly mostly a book, at least it's point of origin that I read about Harry Truman. It was, it was an extended interview with Harry Truman. You might be familiar with the book called Plain Speaking. Sure. Yeah. Remember that one? It's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So my understanding was that it was his office and his administration that created it. And its function, because Truman was a stickler for budget uh, and for government spending, was that the CIA really function as an office for oversight and a consolidator of other government agencies. Am I right or way wrong? You're right. I would take a couple of footnotes. Okay. Uh, so uh, Truman's one of my heroes, and, and uh, here's why. So uh, Roosevelt had a completely different style of leadership. Roosevelt is a is, uh, Roosevelt's a politician mm-hmm. who he called himself the juggler. He he says, I, I have one set of balls in one hand, another set of balls in the other hand, and they're completely different, and I don't let them see each other, and I just keep them moving. And that that's how he ran the government, and somehow it worked, I mean, in, in part because he was such a good orator, and he read people so well. Uh, but if you, if you had a, a management consultant come and look at the Roosevelt administration, how it's doing Intel, the management consultant after a while would run out of the room screaming and, and refuse to ever come back. 
so uh, Truman gets in. Roosevelt has told Truman almost nothing right. uh, about major programs the government's running. So he knew not- nothing about he knew nothing about Oppenheimer's little project out in New Mexico. Cor- is correct. That correct. Correct. He knew nothing about the atomic bomb. He knew nothing about code breaking. Uh, and he is, you know, they had left him at the Senate. The vice president had an office at the Senate. And, you know, it's, what is it, a mile from uh, the White House to the Senate? And that can be a really long mile. Uh, and so he's got this tremendous learning curve from April 12th when he becomes president until the war ends and then on for the rest of the, the Roosevelt uh, term that he fills and then his own. Uh, and I think he does a terrific job picking up from, from um, close to zero and then getting, getting to 50 and then pushing it towards 100. Uh, and so at the end of the war, he's got, uh, you know, one, and, and, and you're right, during the war, he, he is the guy who makes, he runs hearings on government waste and abuse, wartime waste and abuse. Uh, and I kind of like that about him. He, you know, he's the, he's the orderly guy. He's like, uh, okay, I didn't, he didn't go to college. Right. Uh, and, uh, but he just has this common sense and sense of order. And he says, I don't know a whole lot about intelligence, but I know we need it and I want to do it right. And so he's, he, he inherits this, this uh, cluster of activities from the Roosevelt administration. And he starts, he sets about, uh, he, he orders studies, he uh, checks in every so often. He doesn't, have, he doesn't just order the studies and walk, walk away. He comes back, he says, how are we doing on this? Uh, what kind of progress are we making? Now, my book ends in 1946 when he creates something called the the CIG, the Central Intelligence Group, uh, which is basically a clearinghouse and not a very strong agency. Um, but, I mean, he, he acknowledges we're going to have to keep working at this until we get it right. And I think they do get pretty far down the road of getting things right. The, the, uh, um, the act that creates the CIA is uh, signed in 1947. Uh, and then uh, amended a couple years later to give the CIA more authorities. And it's also, it also creates the Air Force and, and uh, does other important things to the defense uh, establishment. So I, I, you know, as I say, I'm a fan of him for, for trying to build a house that will stand. Does he get everything right? No, but he's making a, a darn good effort to uh, do things in an orderly way and to create institutions that will test, will stand the test. He's also really good at who he picks, I think, uh, for these activities. Um, you know, if you look at the people around him, um, it's it's quite a quite a quite a solid crew. Was the CIA formed on the basis of the OSS, which, from what I understand, from what I've read, was kind of a train wreck. A little bit had a little bit of a clown show element to it. Those are my words, not anybody else's. But from what I've read, is that if you had ten activities that the office of the OSS was doing during World War II, nine of them or, or a couple of them might be pretty good, and six or seven of them might be kind of a mess. Was it based on that? Was it based on the Brits and the success that they had with Bletchley Park and code breaking and Enigma? 
or was it something a little bit, maybe a little bit more devious the Soviets had in the NKVD? I, I, I'm not quite sure. Or was it okay. more an extension of the FBI? Okay, so, so um, uh, the code breaking is an activity that hums along like a by World War II standards, a well-oiled intelligence machine in the background. And it's pretty much separate from OSS. And, and the, the code breaking evolves uh, between 1940 and 1945. And a lot of it is in collaboration with the Brits. And they kind of know what they want. And, uh, you know, they, they have the equipment, they have the people, some of them get demobilized, but they keep enough to keep going. And they just quietly say, Mr. President, we got this good thing in the background. Is it okay with you if we just continue to do what we're doing? And oh, by the way, we're doing it with the British. And, and he basically says, yes, that's fine. So code breaking by itself is not the solution. They, the United States needs more than just code breaking, right? Because if the, if the message that announces Pearl Harbor uh, is not intercepted and decoded, you're lost. So you, you need other things as well. And that is, in fact, the case, I, I argue, in the book. There was, there, was no, there was no tactical warning for Pearl Harbor. So uh, OSS, was a, um, OSS was a lot of things, and it, 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 it took the character in what you described was uh, a function of the character of its boss, William J. Donovan, who was wonderful and terrible at the same time. Uh, he, he, he's, he's the guy who was going in 10 different directions. There were people in OSS who said, uh, General Donovan, no, we, we need to just pick one or two of these and, and, uh, and run with them. And, and it, so he's, his fertile mind is spinning off all kinds of activities. Um, you know, wouldn't be a bad thing in, in a think tank, but it's not that good a thing in the director of an organization. But OSS, so, you know, OSS turns in a reasonably good performance uh, in World War II when you consider there was nothing, nothing, zero, zip, absolutely nothing uh, by way of an American uh, espionage agency, that kind of intelligence agency in 1940. So, I mean, they get up to 13,000 people, and most of them are, are doing something worthwhile. Um, but the, the, what OSS gives us is a cadre of officers who, are, who become interested in intelligence. That doesn't really exist in the United States before that. Uh, yes, you have a few military intelligence officers and naval intelligence officers and, and FBI law enforcement types. You don't really have the guys who are thinking about how to uh, spy on the Soviets, how to get the information on their mindset, uh, how to collect strategic information about, let's say, their their bomber force, and, and so that's that's you're you're building up the people who uh, who know how to do that. And enough of them stick around after the war, right? So that's one big thing is uh, OSS uh, creates a cadre of, of American intelligence officers who will stay around after the war. The other thing OSS gives us is the idea 
that you have one one agency that does uh, a number of things. So it does research and analysis. It does uh, secret intelligence, which means uh, recruiting spies and stealing secrets. And it does special operations, which in World War II is people parachuting behind the German lines. So all, all three of those principal activities, and it's independent, right? So it doesn't work. Doesn't, it's not part of the State Department, it's not part of the Department of Defense, it's part of the executive, and ideally works directly for the president. Uh, so that's what OSS gives us, and that's what you see in CIA. You see that basic organization, give or take, and you see a lot of the same people who worked in OSS working in CIA. What did Herbert Hoover think of the creation of the CIA? Her- Herbert or J. Edgar? J. Edgar, did I say Herbert? Sorry. You said Herbert. Huh? Oh, sorry, no, J. Edgar, Herbert was, of course, Herbert, Herbert, thank you. Herbert was still around, actually. That's an interesting Yeah, I doubt he would have cared at that age, but well, yeah, I was thinking of J. Edgar, you know, sorry. He, he stayed engaged. I mean, he's an interesting guy in his own right. Um, J. Edgar, so J. Edgar's idea was, uh, folks, you can just leave everything to me. You know, you know what, <laughs> I've what got is it this. That, what I got this. What is not? What, what is it? The, the officer on the scene says nothing to see here, folks. Please move <laughs> Just keep along. moving. So, that's that's that that would be his uh, his ma- mantra. If if he, I don't know if he ever actually said that, but his thought was he could do it all. He could do law. So he starts out doing. Uh, law enforcement. He professionalizes uh, federal law enforcement. Then he adds a little bit of, so in the 30s, he adds counter espionage to that, starts catching a few German spies. And then uh, around 1940, he says, we can do this foreign intelligence thing too. This is pre-Donovan. He says, we can just, we can just run spies uh, uh, um, and collect information and everything will just be fine. You don't need to ask all these questions. Just leave it to me. Uh, and it, it turns out that, that um, the FBI is well suited to law enforcement and counter espionage. But espionage is a completely different activity. In the one activity, you're trying to catch people who are spying. In, and so you're, it's law enforcement. In the other activity, you're trying to break the law. Ideally, you're breaking foreign laws, right? You're stealing, you're stealing the enemy's uh, secrets. And, and it's a different mentality. And it, it turns out that uh, Hoover and the FBI, they have a, an intelligence service that, that is active in South America during the war. And it just doesn't produce because they, they, or they, they're, they're set to enforce the law and not break the law. And so the reports that they send to Washington and during the war are like we caught 50 German spies. And the, the question that's not being answered is, well, what's the government of Argentina's policy towards the Third Reich? So um, that's a, a, a long answer to your question, what Jay Edgar thought. But so Harry Truman, Harry Truman does, there's two people Harry Truman particularly doesn't like, William, William J. Donovan and Jay Edgar Hoover. And uh, uh, he thinks they're just, he thinks uh, Donovan's too big for his britches, um, besides being a Republican. And uh, <laughs> J. J. Edgar, uh, J. Edgar, who, uh, Truman says, I don't want an American Gestapo. And he's thinking of J. Edgar when he says that. So uh, he wants him to stay in 
a particular, you know, here, here are the rules, here's the, here's the uh, constraints under which you will operate. And he does a terrible, terrible thing. He cuts off Hoover's direct access to the Oval Office. In the old days, uh, you know, Hoover, Hoover and Roosevelt weren't close, but Hoover got a reasonable amount of private time with President Roosevelt. And uh, like, the, like the politician and juggler that he was, you know, they used it to say, well, well what do you know about this, Edgar? Um, you know, can you find out a little more about that? Uh, and uh, this kind of informal spying and, and the, the, it's not quite the trading of favors because the, the, you know, the President Roosevelt is so much more powerful than the director of the FBI. But there's something of that there. There's like, I do a little for you, you do a little for me. Uh, and, and, you know, and Hoover is like, a, he's like somebody at the court of Louis, Louis, uh, who's the one who lost his head, 14 or 16? 16, right? Louis 16. He, he is just, he can be just shameless in uh, buttering up people in the Roosevelt administration that you know he had absolutely nothing in common with and probably didn't even like. I mean, I found some letters that are just so florid, you know, the, the, this uh, sitting next to you at dinner the other night was the, the uh, uh, social event of the year for me. <laughs> just just late ass kissing just, just, and just over the over the top. So, you know, um, anyway, that, that I think that answers. That's, that's well, what... I mean, no, but, but, because the United States was so far behind in 1939, 1941, right? They were so far behind in military and, and, and intelligence. What you're talking about. What I'm trying to figure out is what was the CIA modeled after specifically? Was there another office where somebody else, or Donovan, somebody, uh, uh, one of the generals that say Nimitz, any of these guys? Or even Roosevelt or Truman said, "We need that." I I think it's uh, you know there's a there, there's a lot of churn when the war ends and and right. Truman sends the OSS home, but I think the model they come up with, a uh, you know they they explicitly say this is the OSS model. I don't think so, but they do. They have the say. They have the basic elements of OSS there. Um, and uh, so to the extent that there is one model, that's it. So, and, and you, excuse me, you add independence in there because OSS was an agency of the Joint Chiefs. We tend to forget that. So they were, they were down a couple layers in the, in the hierarchy. And, uh, you know, Donovan hated that. Donovan wanted to have unfettered access to the president. And here he is, He's got to work through the, the staff system at the Joint Chiefs, and his his boss is actually uh, General Marshall. So I want to fast forward a little bit, you know, 10, 15 years after your, where your book ends. So they create the CIA, and then as, as time progresses, this office gets a little bit more involved in the to-dos of other governments and other countries. When this office opened and became an official government entity, 
Would anybody have involved then said, yes, do the Bay of Pigs. That's a great idea. Or was that something that came way later in its evolution? So that's a good question. So if you look at, you look at OSS, you see, you see people who would say, uh, you know, the wilder the operation, the, the better it is, you know, take a, take, take the long shot, take the, take the big risk, take the flyer. If you don't take a big risk, you're not going to get a big gain. And you can, you have those people in OSS. And in fact, you see some of the same guys uh, who were in OSS involved in Bay of Pigs. Um, and you also see the other kind of guys who say, okay, let's take it one step at a time. Let's not overreach. You see some people who in, in OSS who are uncomfortable with the idea of uh, ambitious special operations and, and argue that this is not something that they should be doing. So this is a, this is a, a, a tension that starts in World War II between the guys who think that uh, a secret intelligence agency is a magic bullet. So that's, that's, that's the guys who would give you something like the Bay of Pigs. And then you see the other guys who say, no, an intelligence agency is part of the greater machine of the U.S. government. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it needs to support broader initiatives. It's not a substitute. It's not a replacement. It's a, it, it's a complement. So those are two different approaches to intelligence. And, and you know, you, as I say, you see that developing in World War II, and then you see it, you see it continue. And, and, and actually, you, you know, I'm not a Bay of Pigs guy, but um, scholar, but, but you, you see within CIA, you see uh, people who said, what were they thinking? Right. And, and, you, and you see other ones going like, well, no, this is, why, this is what we're here for. And, and some of these people, as I say, uh, on both sides are uh, OSSers who you know, started to form their mindsets during World War II. So you have this organization that was formed by a guy who was a stickler for budget constraints and for spending and for fiscal responsibility. I'm talking about Truman. Yeah. Now we're here in <laughs> 2022. In this office, at least my perception of it is a gigantic arm of the Department of Defense, however you want to define it. Uh, you used an expression. I actually wrote it. You know, I've got a list of questions on my screen, Nicholas, and it's so funny to use the expression. From where, from from its point of origin to today in 2022, has the CIA gotten a little too big for its britches? Well, uh, you know, I like to say that we ought to call uh, Director Burns or or Director Haynes and ask them that question. <laughs> I I would say. Um, the issue in American intelligence is right-sizing, and that starts in the war. You know, how much of this do we need? And uh, what kind of authorities are we going to let it have? Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we, we now have 18 intelligence agencies. How many do we need? Uh, Did you say you know, 18? One eight, correct. So, I mean, that's tripping that, over themselves. That well, that's that's the issue, right? So, so each service has its own. There's DIA, 
Um, you know, the individual government agencies have their own uh, intelligence offices. So, um, you know, how much do you need? That's that's question. That's question one. I I don't. You know, each and that's a that's a question that's so hard to answer because let's say you're 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 the you're the Manhattan Project, right? And uh, like DOE, so you're an early DOE. Well, does DOE need an intelligence? Does a Manhattan Project need its own intelligence officer? You bet. They'd be crazy not to have it. But the question is, do they need five, fifty, hundred? Uh, and then the other question is, what authorities do you give them? Uh, what restrictions do you uh, place on them? And uh, that's that's where I'm a little. Uh, so I don't have a good answer for what, what the right size of American intelligence is. Um, and I, I'm not sure anybody does. Um, but uh, I do think that we're better off today than we were uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago because the, the, uh, um, the authorities, the regulations get more sophisticated. What you, what you see in World War II when the reason Donovan can go off in 10 directions at once is nobody's saying, hey, hey, Bill, this is exactly what I need you to do. I don't need you to do these other things. And oh, by the way, some of them are illegal. Uh, and so as time goes on and the agencies mature, uh, not just the CIA, but, uh, you know, American intelligence in general, uh, you see, um, you, you see uh, people defining their lanes. Uh, you see uh, regulations, you see legislation, uh, so, so, which I think is a good thing. So I'm, I, I, I'm somebody who's been a bureaucrat, right? And I don't think bureaucrat's a dirty word. Uh, you can be a good bureaucrat or you can be a bad bureaucrat. Uh, and um, so I'm, I am encouraged that uh, we're in a better place today. The third thing I'd say is professionalism. So in, in, in World War II, you don't have any intelligence professionals. You can't. It's all except with the with the exception of some of the code breakers because they start out in a profession which is basically math, statistics, um, and then they do their magic. And so, so there is a profession that's that's growing in the between the world wars. Uh, but for the rest of the intelligence uh, lay down in the United States. There are no real intelligence officers. So, you know, it takes a while for a profession to build up. It's like in World War II, we're like the medical profession before it figured out that you ought to wash your hands between patients. You know, they just don't. And, 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 and that's, not to, that's not to reflect negatively on them. They don't know what they don't know. And I, just as the doctors didn't know they should wash their hands when they went from one patient to the other. You mentioned oversight. My perception sometimes of the CIA is that they're independent, but they're not. Sometimes they're an arm of the White House. Sometimes they're not. Nicholas, who's the oversight on the CIA? Well, I I think so. I I think basically these days I I think oversight works. Uh, that's my. But who's doing opinion. it? Well, I mean, you, you have, you have committees. You have committees. You have it, it, now. If you have a president who's not interested, so the, the ultimate oversight, whether it's uh, Roosevelt, Truman, or any of their successors, the ultimate oversight is the president, right? 
So if you have a president who's who's not really interested in intelligence, who just says, oh, you boys go and do whatever it is you do, and uh, don't tell me. Uh, I just don't want to know about it. <laughs> I just don't, don't tell me. I don't want to know. So that that's giving up a, a good bit of oversight. But then you also have the legislation uh, and then you and you have um, you know you have you have co- congressional committees that I think assert themselves um, and I, I think you have you have a pretty robust you have some of this in World War II uh, but the sense that you you don't break America law I mean that's kind of that's kind of the, the you know uh, for me personally that's kind of the the basic ground rule here is that you 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 know you you what what is it we used to say you don't case officer the case officer and and in this case the the american people you you work for the american i know i sound like mary poppins like mary poppins here but but you work for the american people and you better you better remember who you work for so we have you said 18 that's how you count but that's a that's a common number of okay so 18 we've spent God knows how much money on intelligence, spy everybody. We have these things now, which knows everything that we're doing, even though it says, hey, we're not tracking you. Okay, that's cute. But um, there is, I think, this idea that all of these intelligence communities should work in harmony with one goal, which is to protect America and our interest. Do they? Again, you're asking me a question way way beyond what I what I set out to what's answer. Your what's but your gut I, type? I I think the answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So I, I here's a here here's one way that I like to answer the question. So when when we first uh, it's it's like going halfway to the wall. So you start out 20 feet from the wall and you go halfway, 10 feet. So you're 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 half. And you keep going halfway, halfway, halfway. Are you ever going to get to the wall? No. You know, it's 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 uh, we're pe- it's human beings involved here. It's government. It's going to be messy. Um, there is no perfection, but you keep getting closer and closer to the wall. So I I like to think we're we're making progress, and we started the journey in World War II. You did another book uh, that was quite successful: writer, sailor, soldier, spy. How on earth did you come up with that? Did you unearth that one? So that's a, that's kind of a shaggy dog story in itself. But uh, this, in a way, is a more conventional book right. for a guy like me who's trained to go to the archives and come out after a couple of years and try and sum it up. So the I found uh, the I found a reference to Hemingway having been recruited by. Soviet intelligence in 1940, and I thought this is huge. It, you know, it was fairly well sourced, and uh, you know, it wasn't you know, it wasn't like a JFK assassination conspiracy theory. You know, some some of them are like wow, uh, and others are like mm, just barely possible. Uh, but they all they're all they all lack you know there's there's a missing link in in all of them and this didn't have the missing link this had like this was this was re, you know this was really good evidence that he had signed up with the soviets and i thought this is huge here's this hemingway is like this this model of 
uh, Americanism of, of, you know, uh, truth, justice, the American way, how we speak, how we write. Uh, and, and he works for the Soviets, please. So I looked around and uh, I expected that there would be an article somewhere or, a, or, or somebody had written a book to explain, yeah, this is how it happened and, 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 and wrapped it up in a neat little package for us and, and, and gave us so that so we didn't have to lie awake at night wondering why Hemingway was a Soviet spy. <laughs> so um, I, nobody did that. I mean, there, was a, there is one good book that, that uh, includes a chapter on this, but, but basically nobody explained what this meant to uh, Heming for Hemingway's work uh, in how it fit into the, the context of his life, uh, you know, and um, how it how it affected his life. And so, in the end, Hemingway was not a great Soviet spy. Good. That led my last question. Uh, you know, you've written several books. Uh, I know those are a labor of love, but sometimes it's a labor. Uh, can you tell me? Are, are you working on sometimes? Book? Yeah, sometimes it's sometimes it's labor and sometimes it's love. Sometimes okay. more labor, sometimes it's more love. So these are uh, OSS guys um, who. This is your next book. And the, yeah, which I'm, I'm I'm working with a uh, a very skilled um, historian and journalist, and um, so this, it's the story of, of a man named Pete Ortiz, and uh, Pete is a. He's, he's uh, legally American and culturally French. And he goes from the, his parents' divorce and he goes back and forth between Paris and, and uh, Los Angeles. And um, he, he joins the French Foreign Legion because he doesn't want to go to college. And then well, World War II breaks out. So he's born, uh, let's see, uh, he would have been born 1910 or so. Uh, and then uh, he... World War II breaks out and he goes back into French uniform. The Germans capture him and they go, what are you? you know, who are you? What are you doing here? And he escapes and he comes to the United States and he tries to join, tries to become an officer in the U.S. military. And there's no, there's no category for a guy like this. He's, he's a high school graduate, but uh, he, he has no college, he speaks perfect French. Uh, he's been an acting officer in the Foreign Legion. He can do all these things. There's no category. So he enlists in the Marine Corps. He lives. He's, he's like, he's, he's at like 30 at this point. He, you know, and everyone else going to Paris Island is like 17, right? 17, 18. And there's, there's granddad here. And they, you know, finally an officer realizes this guy is really different. And so they sent him to OSS. Then he parachutes behind German lines. And it's just the, it's an amazing story. So, um, you know, I, basically I'm, what I'm doing, thinking of doing as follow-on projects is, is picking out kind of individuals or individual activities from this book and then elaborating on them. And the code breakers are others. That's another category of person that I, I, I want to look at. And, and again, what I'm, what I'm interested in is what did it feel like to do this? Not, not okay, he invented... It, it, this code breaker invented this machine and it worked like this uh, and its significance in the development of, of code breaking is is x or y there are a lot of people there are a lot of experts who are better qualified than me to do that but what what was it like to be um to be a, an early code breaker uh, it may be too much of a challenge to figure out how 
you know, these guys didn't exactly, most of them didn't keep diaries, right? They didn't come home, they, they actively discouraged from keeping diaries. So uh, it may be, it may be a real trick to try and figure out, well, what did it feel like to, to come home and say nothing about what you did at work, right? It's, it, it, you're, you're, you're trying to break the Japanese code and, and that's what you do all day. And then you come home and you sit at dinner with your wife and you can't say one word about it, but it has, it has occupied your whole being. So what happens? Um, so that's the kind of thing I'm playing with. And, it, you know, stress for these guys. Uh, some of these guys, not just code breakers, but, uh, you know, working in Intel can be very, very stressful. So, uh, you know, some people master that stress. It's not a big deal. Uh, other people who serve and, and, and uh, do their job and, and more, uh, the burdens drive them crazy. So that's the kind of thing I like to play with is, is, you know, what's left at the end of the day. What's, what, what, uh, what, what's the greatest generation suffered the same things that subsequent generations suffer. So in, in terms of PTSD, um, post-combat stress, um, wounds, you know, they, this, we start to, we, we see this coming to the fore after the civil war, but there seems, we, we seem to kind of trick ourselves uh, that once the war's over, the problems go away, yeah, right? It's right. just done, we're finished. Yeah. You know, the Nazis are gone. The soldiers went home, uh, American soldiers, they lived happily ever after. Well, uh, you know, it, my, my argument is, no, it's not over. It's never over. It's, you know, and especially World War II. World War II just keeps, what, what, what is going on in the Ukraine right now? Uh, or Ukraine. Uh, and that is, that, that's like straight out of World War II. It you, know, is. you know, excuse me, Mr. Putin, but, but that's so last century. You know, and and uh, that 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 there there should be a um, that there's a conventional war in Europe, and people are suffering in the same way they suffered in 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 uh, forty four and forty five uh, on the same turf on the same turf. You know, I'll bet some of the people who are in 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 uh, in cellars in Ukraine now were in the same cellars when the Germans and the Soviets were fighting. Um, you know, there are not going to be too many of them, but there'll be, I'll bet there's a handful who goes, oh, no, not this again. We already again. did this once. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, like sorry to get carried away here. No, not at all. I, I really appreciate your time. The book is terrific. Uh, I look forward to your next work, and I very much thank, well, thank you for you. your time. This was fascinating. Thank oh, you Oh, well, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm going to call and interview you. You have, you have, you've got a great job. Thank you very much. Anytime. All thank right. you very much. You bet. Take all care. Right.